And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, which is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who, who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant Depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed and there was a prophetess Anna the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher she was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You can stay standing while we pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story that Luke has compiled for us from eyewitness accounts, from Mary, from uh, Joseph, from uh, all who were present here. Thank you that we get to be privy to what happened 40 days after Jesus was born, uh, being presented to you in the temple. I pray that you would clear away uh, our distractions I pray that we could come to you curious, humble, teachable, willing to listen, willing to lay aside our own ideas, our our own uh, goals, and trade them for yours. Especially, Lord, as we enter the, what is potentially the busiest week of the year for many, Lord, that we would be present with you this morning and let you change our hearts. Let you speak. Holy Spirit, I pray that you, by your word, would just pierce to places that we can't even reach. 
We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. All right, we are looking at Simeon and Anna. You can't see the picture super well, but this is a painting from Rembrandt uh, in 1631 or thereabouts uh, where, you know, the celestial light is just shining upon Simeon and Jesus and Mary as he takes him up in his arms. It's a beautiful painting. But today we're, we're thinking about the fact that waiting is the plan. Waiting is hard. And we modern people are not good at it. You know, if, if past generations could see us now with our eight-second attention spans, they would be shocked at our lack of patience and our disdain for waiting. You know, we used to have natural avenues to grow in patience. You know, there were places we would go that are called waiting rooms. And prior to the year roughly 2007, we would actually wait in those rooms. Not anymore. Now, in those rooms, we are getting stuff done. We're scrolling, we're checking our emails, we are redeeming that waiting room. But the problem with that is that waiting and, and boredom Boredom is no longer a regular feature of the human life. We've done away with it. But in doing that, we have done away with any regular practice of waiting. We don't like to wait. (laughs) It's okay. You know, take engagement, for example. I love engagement, of course. And we've got a couple engaged couples in our church right now. (laughs) One of which may have happened last night. What? (laughs) Show it off. But, and I'm I'm speaking speaking from experience personally. I'm not going to put this on anyone else. But engagement, once the dust settles of excitement, it's hard. You know, I, I only loved engagement because the wedding was coming, right? You don't love engagement for the sake of engagement because if the wedding never comes, then what's the point of that, right? And so you're, you're in this in-between period. You, it's, you have all of the commitment, but none of the benefits, right? You, you're in a tension between the already and the not yet, You're basically in a relational waiting room. So that was just me, but I'm super excited for you guys. (laughs) But it's a great picture. It's a picture of this waiting period. And in our passage today, Simeon and Anna, these are these people that you might know who've never gotten a smartphone. They know how to wait. We read that Simeon was, quote, waiting for the consolation or comfort of Israel. And that Anna spoke to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
Simeon and Anna were the last in a centuries-long line of Jews who were waiting for the first advent of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. We are 2,000 years post. But in the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, the waiting hasn't stopped. It just changed. So as Christians who are no longer waiting for Jesus to come save us from our sins, but we're still waiting. So how do we patiently wait for the second advent of Christ when the days are so dark, when things look so bleak, and humanity is as divided against one another as ever? How can meditating on this first advent of Christ shape us into those who are able to patiently endure the brokenness of this world with the hope and the peace and the joy and the love of Christ. Let's see if this story can't help us. Let's dive in. In three acts, we learn today that waiting is the plan. Okay, act one, the context. Verses 21 to 24. God has prepared us for the waiting. Look back and we'll start in verse 21 this time. It says, At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, this is Jesus, he was called, oh, it says right here, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, okay, so this is day 40, Jesus is about six weeks old. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, so this is the context. Mary and Joseph were serious about obedience to God. And we see them in these four verses doing all the things they were supposed to do as serious Bible-believing Jews. Jesus, as the firstborn son, was to be dedicated to the Lord, according to Exodus 13. As a boy, he was to be circumcised on the eighth day, which he was. And Mary was to set aside 40 days, during which she was unclean from the process of childbirth, and then at the end of the 40 days, she was to present a sacrifice at the temple to purify herself according to Leviticus 12. They did all of it. So all of this is just fairly straightforward, ordinary. And the one interesting thing about the story so far is that they offered two turtle doves or two pigeons. We don't know which they picked, but those were the options. Instead of a lamb and a turtle dove or a pigeon. The typical sort of uh, plan A sacrifice was a lamb and a turtle dove. But they did two turtle doves or two pigeons. And in Leviticus, Moses stipulated that you could only bypass plan A, offering a lamb, if you couldn't afford one. 
And so we see that the family that Jesus was born into is not a wealthy family. They were ordinary people. Working class, lower class, nothing special. God appointed his Messiah, his Christ, the anointed one, to not just identify with the lowly in the message that he would proclaim, but in his actual life. Jesus didn't incarnate, take on flesh as the eternal second person of the Trinitarian God. He did not incarnate into the highest humanity had to offer. He incarnated into a family of little means. But that's really the only interesting thing so far. Otherwise, it's straightforward and typical obedience from an ordinary working class family in Israel. And I love it. Because it reminds me that most of the life of faith in God is not extraordinary feats of faith and power. It is ordinary, daily faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? Faithfulness to what God has already said. Three times in three verses, Luke refers us to the law of the Lord, or the law of Moses. And twice he quotes from it directly. What does this tell us about the characters of this story? It tells us that this life in the in-between, this life of waiting, looks like trusting in what God has already said. You know, you might be longing for God to speak to you. And that's a great thing. The next point of my sermon is that God is still speaking to us in fresh, personal ways. But before we can embrace the spontaneity of the God we worship and follow, we have to embrace what he has already said. In order to experience the fresh words he might want to speak to us today, we need to take all his former words to the bank. Now, this isn't typically flashy and exciting. Many times it looks just like a regular diet of Scripture with or without all those fuzzy feelings that we'd like to come with it. This means taking God at His word. Choosing to believe Him no matter how we feel about it. God in His given word has prepared us for this difficult lifetime task of waiting. We have all we need. So that's Act 1, the context. God has prepared us for the waiting. Let's move to Act 2, which is the reality. The Spirit is at work in the waiting. Look at verse 25 through 33. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms 
and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles or nations and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And so it's not just God's word that helps us in the waiting. It's also his spirit. Notice that in Act 1 there, the law of the Lord, a.k.a. their Bible, was mentioned three times. Here in Act 2, it's the Holy Spirit that is mentioned three times. God wants to shed light on what is really happening here. This all, as you're reading it, especially if you're just familiar with with the law, it might just seem ordinary and mundane, but it's not. Right in the middle of this ordinary, poor Jewish family coming to do their duties in the temple, we are introduced to a prophet named Simeon. We are told he is righteous, and devout. He takes God's law seriously, but he also goes beyond just conforming to the rules of the law and presses in to a relationship with the God of the law. He has a genuine relationship with God. The Holy Spirit, who is God, was upon him. God was his everything. And God chose to use Simeon to shed light for his parents, for the people present, and then to us. What is really happening here? Simeon is staring death in the face. He knows death is close. But there was something between him and a peaceful death. A promise that he would see the Messiah. Now Israel is in the middle of 400 years of silence from God. It's been centuries since the last prophet spoke. And notice that one of Simeon's accolades here is that he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. You know, part of what makes him righteous and devout is that all his eggs are in the basket of God showing up to rescue Israel. This concept of the consolation or comfort of Israel is heavily drawn from the prophet Isaiah. And he spoke about 700 years before this. Over and over again through Isaiah, God promises to comfort Israel. And this comfort is directly tied to the work of the servant described in Isaiah, which, as we studied last June, is clearly Jesus Christ, the suffering yet victorious servant Savior. And so God, the Holy Spirit, tells Simeon that he would have to wait for death a little bit longer until he could behold God's Messiah with his own eyes and touch him. With his own hands. How cool is that? And it says 
that when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And then he utters a prophecy that is both personal to him, but it's also universal to all people. And we should read this scene as as Simeon's symbolic final act before death comes for him. And he would have it no other way. In seeing and beholding and holding Jesus with his hands, Simeon now feels free and content to breathe his last breath. And I think it's interesting that Simeon is now content in death because part of the promise in Isaiah is the end of death. In Isaiah 25, he writes, God will swallow up death forever. And then it says, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And so Simeon is content with his last breath because he knows it won't be his last breath. The beginning of the end of death has arrived. Now, death remains an enemy to this day, but it's losing ground rapidly. And Luke makes it triply clear that Simeon is full of the Holy Spirit. Three times it says that the Spirit was upon him, with him, guiding him. And so we should take note what the the Spirit-filled life looks like here. It looks like a clear understanding of who Jesus is. It looks like a personal experience of what this means personally. And it looks like a deep desire for other people to experience this salvation as well. Not to mention that the word consolation or comfort here is the same root word for the title that Jesus gives the Spirit in John 15. He says, when the helper or comforter comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. A clear sign that the Spirit is working in you is a growing awareness of God's love for you through the person of Jesus Christ. And so Simeon, he moves beyond his personal story here. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation. And he moves beyond his personal story and proclaims this tiny baby as the fulfillment of salvation for all people everywhere. It says, You have prepared your salvation in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon recognizes that this salvation that is wrapped up in this tiny six-week-old infant baby boy is not just for him. It's for all people, Gentile and Jew. And in fact, it's somewhat scandalous here that Luke, he parts with uh, Jewish norms to, to name Gentiles first. He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Gentiles just means nations. The Greek word is ethnos. All peoples. And so Luke, one of his purposes in his, his, his uh, book of Luke and then the book of Acts is to follow Isaiah's and Moses' lead in widening God's eternal purposes beyond just the people of Israel to include the nations. And so in this ordinary, poor Jewish family, through Simeon, God proclaims he is doing something new. The waiting continues, but God is working even in the waiting. God is active even in the waiting. Walking with God in the waiting doesn't mean the waiting ends. It means the waiting is full of hope and expectation. Let's finish with this third and final act. Act three, the invitation. Embracing the God who is in the waiting. Look at verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so before we are privileged to meet this prophetess, Anna, before then we are privy to a conversation that Simeon has, possibly even with Mary by herself. In the public prophetic song from Simeon, we get the universal nature of Jesus' mission. But then in this private conversation, we begin to gather that his mission won't be easy. He says, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So, Mary's been pregnant with Jesus for nine plus months. She just gave birth to him 40 days ago. She knows he's the savior of the world. But now she's starting to be informed and and warned by God through Simeon that this is not going to be easy for Jesus. And we, we should ask, you know, could Jesus, when he was grown... Could he have, 
what many of the Jews of his day wanted him to do? Could he have overthrown the Roman Empire and set up his kingdom on earth right then and there? You know, I, I know he could have. Why? Because when he was arrested and his disciples began to resist, he said, don't you know that I can ask my father to send 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels. He could have done that. But that wouldn't have accomplished the salvation we're talking about. The angel told Joseph that Jesus would save his people, not from Rome, but from their sins. Sure, Jesus could have taken Satan's easy path to military and political victory, but he had a bigger fish to fry. Ending sin and death. But doing that without ending us. And to do that, he had to take another route. Not through political means, not through military means, through humility and suffering. And Simeon also includes a somewhat enigmatic puzzling warning of Mary's own future suffering. He says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Man, what a turn Mary's life has taken in the last 10 months. She is 40 days postpartum, having just birthed the Savior of the world. But she is also finding out that the path to this salvation is going to be one of incredible pain and suffering, including for her. Remember, she is at the foot of the cross, watching, weeping. And so Simeon clues Mary into something we already know 2,000 years later. Jesus would be a controversial figure. We know that. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And so he alludes to a concept first mentioned in Isaiah that several New Testament authors also pick up on. Isaiah says he will become, one, a sanctuary, but then two, a stone of offense and a rock of of stumbling. It says, to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And it says, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And so Jesus is a sanctuary to those who know him for who he is and who place their faith in him, their trust in him but he's a tripping hazard to everyone else. And then it says, so that thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus Christ is God's litmus test. God's question for all human beings is this. What are you 
going to do with Jesus? Now, this is an inclusive exclusivity. God has appointed one person as Savior and Lord. Not an equal smorgasbord of options that all lead to the same place. You know, saying that all religions are equal is just another way of saying that all religions are equally wrong. God has appointed one person. So yes, it is incredibly exclusive. But this invitation is open to all people from all nations at all times. You can have eternal life today. doesn't matter who you are. There is one prerequisite. One. You know your need. That's it. If you know your need, you can bring it to Jesus. This is as inclusive as it gets. Open to all. And so Simeon clues Mary into this. And then finally, we have the incredible pleasure to be introduced to another really old person, Anna. Luke goes out of his way to present these two extremely old people. It says in the Greek, well, in English it says she was advanced in years. But in the Greek it says she was advanced in her many years. He just wants us to know. She's old. And really, we, we think we might know how old, but we're a little bit unsure because the Greek is a little tricky. Here is the best we have. She got married. We don't know how old she was. Maybe in her late teens, like many Jewish women. She was married for seven years to her husband. And then her husband probably died. And then she was a widow for the rest of her life which may have been until she was 84, so she might be 84 right now, or another translation that is equally possible is she lived as a widow for 84 years. So she's either 84 or in her hundreds. And I'm, I'm thinking she's probably in her hundreds because why else would Luke say she's advanced in her many years? She's a, uh, what's the word? Sentinel. Is it just centarian? <laughs> Something like that. She's old. She's really old. And so she's, she's old. She's, she's lived as a widow. She was never remarried. And Luke wants us to know, what has she done with her life? It says she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She devoted all her time, all her energy, all her resources into her faith, into serving at the temple as a prophetess. Both Simeon and Anna were prophets. Both Simeon and Anna were staring death in the face. Both Simeon and Anna had found meaning and purpose 
in life, even in great age. And where was it? It was in their relationship with God, his word, and his people. Both of them had learned to embrace this in-between, waiting, uncomfortable reality of an already-not-yet world. And we read here that Anna, at that very hour, ambushed the party and began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. When you're as old as this, one of two things can happen. You can either be jaded and cynical at the brokenness of the world and at God's seeming distance from doing something about it. Or, like Simeon and Anna, you can embrace the God who is in the waiting. Anna was able to both give thanks and acknowledge the waiting. You notice that tension there? Most of us give thanks because something we've been waiting for is here. And there's no more waiting. I'm thankful now. For her, it was both. I can give thanks for God's faithfulness while I'm waiting for Him to fulfill His promises. This in-between, uncomfortable, waiting reality of Advent and of the Christian life in general is the plan. This is how it is. We better get used to it. Waiting is no fun. How many of you have been to Disneyland? That place is one giant waiting room. (laughs) Unless you're really good at it. Then you might wait for 45 minutes instead of two hours. But, you know, I've had some of the most important conversations in my life waiting in line at Disneyland. (laughs) It's not about the waiting. It's about who you're waiting with and who you're waiting for. While we wait for Jesus' second advent, his coming again, we get to wait with one another. That's why it's so, so important that you are here now to be reminded that it's worth the wait. And we get to wait with God's presence. Like we saw Simeon, the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit is available to you too. The Holy Spirit is our engagement ring that we get to flash and say the waiting is worth it. The best thing about being engaged is knowing that a wedding is coming. We have a taste of what we're waiting for in the person of the Holy Spirit and in the community of God's people. Through the Spirit, God sustains us with what we need for every day. He's not going to give you tomorrow's strength today. He gives you today's strength right now. Until Jesus comes back for us. Until then, 
Every vocation that God calls his people to is valuable. Everyone. Singleness, marriage, suffering, parenting, your workplace, loving your coworkers, recovery, sobriety, dying, living. Every vocation that God calls his people to is valuable. I want to close with a few words from the book of Jude. And I want you to go ahead and close your eyes. Jude's a short book, but it packs a punch. And in this, one of his final words, he provides a benediction for those who are waiting. So go ahead and listen. He says, But you... Beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Go ahead and open your eyes. You know, we individually and and corporately, we lean into the love of God through the Spirit. But if you've been around long enough, you know that sometimes you're in that doubting category. And that word doesn't just mean like intellectual doubts, like, oh, does God exist? How can God exist when evil exists? Those kinds of doubts, although those are valid doubts and and questions. This word also means wavering. Wavering. You know, we all enter seasons of wavering, of questioning, of wondering, of doubting. God has mercy for that. And he wants us to have mercy for that. When I'm in that place of wavering, which I am at times, I need y'all to be here to proclaim both thanksgiving and longing. To be able to give thanks and to acknowledge the waiting to this good God. Waiting with eagerness, waiting with hope, through suffering, is the plan. So let's keep it up. Amen? Let's pray.